0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com.
1: I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's no secret that housing is tricky in Nashville. If you've tried to hermit crab your way out of one place into another in the last few years, I bet you've got a story to share. Even when you've got resources and the time that you need, it can be work. So just imagine what it's like when the cards are stacked against you. Illness, lack of transportation, phone access, criminal records. These can make it nearly impossible to find a place to live. Even putting in an application for an apartment can be a Herculean task. The path to permanent housing is not easy. Later this hour, we'll meet people traveling that path and find what resources are available to help. But first, Tennessee has gone from some of the worst dental coverage for people on Medicaid to having some of the best. Starting this month, more than 600,000 Tennesseans have comprehensive benefits covering everything from dental cleanings to full dentures. Problem is, historically, most Tennesseans, most Tennessee dentists don't accept 10 care. Joining me now to talk all things teeth is WPLN senior reporter Blake Farmer. Blake, thanks for coming in.
2: Uh happy to be
1: here. Don't look at my teeth too closely. Okay, okay. I'll try. I'll try not to, but they are beautiful. <laughs> all right. So, you know, we're not exactly known for having an being overly generous mm-hmm. with Medicaid benefits. Now, dental benefits for everyone. What tip the scales?
2: Well, you know, there's a quote that sticks with me from our our former um, health commissioner in the state uh, when she was essentially uh, defending the the need to spend more money in this arena. And um, she basically said, you know, uh, the truth hurts here, but like if you don't have a good smile, then often you don't have a good job Mm. because really the economic... Uh, consequences, uh, I think, have really been powerful to folks who maybe uh, were not overly convinced by some of the uh, mounting evidence that health-wise, that that uh, all things that happen in your mouth are connected to the the whole health of the person. So, you know, we've seen this thing coming in the last couple of years. Um, Tennessee had already expanded; uh, pregnant women um, w- would be able to have full dental coverage because of the broader health benefits for both mommy and baby. And uh, and now, we have this where uh, TennCare, which is Tennessee's Medicaid program, basically has comprehensive dental benefits for everyone. That's that's like uh, 1.6 million people in the state. Wow. And you're telling me that Tennessee now has some of the best dental coverage for
1: Medicaid patients.
2: Yeah. You know, a lot of states in our region um, just cover uh, emergency dental care. So let's say somebody goes into the emergency room because they have, you know, a, 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 a cracked tooth or something that that just has to be pulled that's the sort of thing that that uh, Medicaid programs around the south and, and other parts of the country will cover um, and Tennessee actually hasn't even covered that um, t- mm. it, truly it was it was among the worst now Tennessee's you know uh you, you look at a sort of state by state of what Medicaid covers in states and Tennessee's uh, among the ranks of California and and New York which is really rare for Tennessee when it comes to to uh, our Medicaid program 10 care mm. and, and this is an at a cost of about 75 million dollars at least for this this first year.
1: So now the issue is that we simply don't have the dentists. Is
2: that just a matter of time to let doctors get signed up to take this new benefit? You know, uh, th- there have already been lots of folks with 10care dental benefits and now these mostly have been kids. Hmm. Um so in other words though it's not not like dentists aren't used to taking 10care patients. The problem here, and it really is a nationwide problem, is that Medicaid usually pays so little compared to your commercial insurance, you know, a plan with Blue, Blue Cross or something. So, in Tennessee, only about a third of the dentists even take TennCare, and a lot of times they might limit how many 10 care patients they want to have on their roster just mm. because the finances um, are are so tricky. So I mean, this has proven to be a huge problem. i was I was talking to a woman uh, late last year, it was in December who couldn't find a dentist already. She had benefits through uh, being pregnant. Um, and so that uh, you know, dental benefits have been expanded to to folks who are pregnant. Uh, and here's what she said. This is Anisha Love. She's a new mother from Clarksville.
3: I had calcium uh, deficiency for when I was pregnant with my son and it's made a lot of holes in my teeth, and I've lost a big chunk in one of my molars.
2: In fact, she said she even uh, <laughs> cracked one of her teeth during labor. I mean, she wow. needs a dentist pretty bad. She is very motivated, but she's already having an impossible time finding a dentist who would see her in Clarksville. And that was late last year. Uh, I've checked back in with her, and, and and she still can't find a dentist. And of course, now She's got another 600,000 people across the state to compete with who have uh, newly received this dental benefit. You know, it sounds like these
1: dental benefits aren't going to be very helpful. What is the state doing about the lack of dentists who will see 10 care patients?
2: Well, the state has increased what it pays for um, seeing uh, uh, folks on Tent Care by six and a half percent was that's more than they would normally increase it in a year, uh, but they've also expanded dental schools at both uh, Meharry here in Nashville, which which has a big dental program, and then at uh, the University of Tennessee. Also, got a program that incentivizes graduates to work in underserved areas, and those are mostly in rural parts of the state. Mm-hmm. But this is going to take a lot of time to work out. Is this just a matter of paying dentists enough to see patients? That's certainly a huge part of it, but it's it's more than that. You'll also hear dentists um, complain about no-show rates. Um, you know, my wife used to work in a dental office, so I became very familiar with this issue. In fact, every once in a while, I get a call uh, in the middle of the day, hey, can you come in to get your cleaning? Because uh, we've had somebody drop out. Mm. A, a dental practice is very, uh, it's built around keeping dentists and hygienists very, very busy, where they're bouncing patient to. Patient, you want that chair full. So, you know, much of the job of the front office is just making sure people know when their appointment is and getting them in the chair and getting them in there on time. Well, Medicaid patients have many more hurdles um, for just getting to an appointment. Transportation mm-hmm. is often more of an issue. Maybe it falls through. Taking off work, usually not as easy. Child care, really uh, a problem when you already are dealing with a low income. So you have some dental offices where if you don't show, you actually get charged a small fee, like $25 for a, for a no-show. Well, uh, with care, you cannot charge a no-show fee to Medicaid patients. So mm. it is a complicated matter, but one that Tennessee is going to have to face this year. Blake Farmer is senior health care reporter for WPLN. Blake, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for your reporting. And keep smiling. <laughs> Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll check back in with one woman we met last year who's on the path to permanent housing. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. For people who are unhoused, the journey to long-term or even short-term housing is a long one. Last winter, we met a woman named Tammy. We're using her first name only because of safety concerns. Tammy had been living outdoors for about five years when she started the long path towards Section 8 housing. It's a grueling process that involves a lot of paperwork and it's confusing. After some months, Tammy qualified for rapid rehousing and moved from her South Nashville campsite into a motel room a few miles away. After so many years outside, a double bed, heat, and electricity were a blessing. Here's Tammy the night she moved in.
4: Excitement, just to relax and no noise, no nothing, not worry about this or that, and just peace and prayer, prayer. Thank you, God. <laughs> thank you, God. I couldn't pray enough to get here, and now I just have to thank God each and every day we're in here now. And we're out of the cold, and that's a blessing. That's a true blessing from God. So we're moving forward. I'm not going backwards.
1: A year later, Tammy is still in the motel. Our freelance producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley has kept in touch with her and brings us this update.
4: Look at all the birds. (laughs) Look at how high the birds' nests are. That tells you it's going to be a bad winter when they're up high like that.
5: Tammy and I are sitting in my car outside a cottage in Inglewood. I've never been here before, and neither of us know the people who live there. But she still wanted me to see it. We lived here and raised our kids for 28 and a half years right here. It's a really sweet house, isn't it? I liked it. How many bedrooms?
4: I finally made it at three because Ray and Jason were at that age where they wanted to scuffle. I thought, oh, no, you're not putting me through this.
5: Yeah, so but Tammy's innovative. Bedroom. She took the two-bedroom home Different and turned it into three, moving one of her sons into the dining room for a while. This place was full of life.
4: I'd had the whole ball team here. I'm like, oh, Lord, have I lost my mind? But I had we had a field day. And those memories, we had so much fun with them.
5: Later... When her kids had kids, one of her grandsons put his handprints and initials in wet concrete on the sidewalk out front. They used to have grill-outs and sleepovers, three decades of memories in this place. And even all these years later, there are pieces of their life here. Her son did the drywall and built out the porch. And even though her husband was under hospice care at the time, she said he rode up and down the driveway on a moped, barking orders.
4: Hollering and screaming, right get this, right do that. <laughs> I said, Daddy, give me a break for a minute.
5: Quit <laughs> hollering at me. <laughs> and there, Tammy points out the car window. That tree was a gift from her husband. As
4: asked the realtor when I saw the house, I said, can I please take my tree with me? He said, well, not now, cause y- you should have said something to get up before we took off. It. I said, Well, I didn't know. I didn't think about it. I said, But I want my tree.
5: The tree is still there. But Tammy and her family are long gone now. After her husband died of cancer in 2008, she says his life insurance was denied by the company where he'd worked for 36 years. But you may still be in this house if you'd gotten that life insurance? Yes. I
4: know I would. I'd have never lost my home.
5: As it was, she couldn't afford payments on her own. So in 2014, she sold it for 175000
4: I don't know what it's worth. It's probably over 200000 or more. Oh, I think you'll be surprised. Let's oh, see. I'm going to be blown away. Yeah,
5: we're both going to roll mm-hmm. our eyes at this. I pull up Zillow on my phone. So in 2019, it sold for 360000
4: Oh, you're joking. No, it didn't.
5: Oh, my goodness. Five years later, 360000 Oh, my goodness. That makes me sick. Tammy has been through a lot of loss in her life. But even those who have not had a string of tragedies are finding it difficult to make this city home. That's something Chelsea Vaughn sees firsthand. She's a LifeNav housing coach with the Salvation Army. She's been working with Tammy to find her permanent housing. The transitional or gap housing Tammy's been in? The goal is a year.
3: However, we, you know, if it goes longer than that, because we're having difficulties with any number of barriers then we
5: accommodate that as as much as we possibly can. Chelsea says together they've put in multiple applications at both private and subsidized locations. And depending on complexities, the time from gap to permanent housing can vary wildly. She says in Tammy's case, one thing making it harder was, until recently, Tammy's grown son was living with her, and that was making it difficult to find shelter together. And she's a witness to just how few affordable units are even out there. I know that seems to be, you
3: know, an answer that a lot of people give, but it's true.
5: Tammy says she's completely overwhelmed when Chelsea asks her to submit applications on her own. She has a physical disability that keeps her from being able to walk very far. She's got limited cash flow, no car, and right now, no phone access. I asked Chelsea if she thinks Tammy will get home in 2023. That is my hope. In the meantime... Tammy's on waiting lists, and if her name comes up, Chelsea will get a call, and they'll go in person and fill out a secondary application. She'll advocate for Tammy and hope for a move-in date. It's a lot to go through, this path to permanent housing. Tammy and I reflected on it recently over lunch at a meet-and-three. So where she's staying now is very different than the sweet neighborhood where we sat. She says she's just waiting in a motel room in South Nashville. Bed, TV, tiny bathroom, mini-fridge. She's relatively safe and says she's grateful, but it's no home.
4: Sitting on a bed all the time. I'm tired of a bed. I don't
5: wanna live in a motel for two years. I want my own place. For friendship, she tells me she walks down the street and talks to neighborhood sex workers. Tammy is alone. Her adult kids are both dealing with challenges that keep them from being present for their mom.
4: So I'm lost. And I don't know which way to look. Never been by myself a day in my life to now.
5: She says she's also tired of soup and sandwiches. So when Tammy gets her permanent home, she's going to finally get her furniture out of storage and... I
4: am going to fix some of the best chicken dressing with gravy you've ever had. (laughs) I want to cook my own dinner with my recliner and lay back there with a good old chicken dressing in my lap.
1: (laughs) My next guest has her own experience traveling this path to permanent housing. Like Tammy... Liz Mallard lived outside for years. She called Brookmead Park home for nearly a decade. Liz, thanks for being here, and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Can you relate to Tammy's journey?
6: Yes, I can. Um, Of course, there's little bits and pieces that aren't the same. Um, The waiting is difficult, and you kind of get, you give up, you Mm. know, when you're out there. You don't know that people are working for you. Um within that weight, there's like crazy things that happen. You know, our health goes downhill. There's, um, there's some violence out there, of course. Uh, you can't keep a hold of anything. You lose all your belongings. And then the transition into the mobile housing, I went to the roadway. Um, it was a huge change, and yeah, it wasn't a permanent home. But I remember walking in the door, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I could live here for the rest of my life," mm. because it was small, but it was bigger than a tent, and I could lock the door. Um, it wasn't in the best area, but you know, you kind of make do what you can. And it it would have been boring if I was just sitting there, but. I decided to go out and volunteer with the place that came out and helped me when I was out there. So that was something that kept me busy and I could go back out and see my friends that were still out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it was a waiting game. Even after you get approved for your Section 8, you got to find, well, your caseworker will find places where the landlord accepts Section 8 and if they have any openings and Those are far and in between. So they're working harder. And again, you don't know if they're doing anything. You're not, you know, and you're so used to out of sight, out of mind is what they think of us. Or you're so used to just giving up. And so when I got my place, it was game changer. Mm. Not only a place that I could call home, but there were the struggles of surviving indoors, Mm -hmm. You go from surviving outdoor, you know, and you get so used to it that going indoors, you're kind of like, what do I do? You know, I didn't know how to work a thermostat.
1: Wow. Wow. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit later. But you were out at Brookmead Park for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Tell me, how did you begin your journey to finding permanent housing?
6: There was um, housing navigators that would come out. And Mental Health Co-op and other nonprofits. And Mental Health Co-op did, I got into their system and somehow a housing navigator came and found me. And from that point on, it was them coming and doing the paperwork I needed, getting the ID and the social and everything. And then it's just a waiting game out there. So they come out and reach out to us. Because there was no way I was going to think, oh, I want to go get housing now. I was too stuck in survival. Mm -hmm.
1: I understand. I'd like to bring in our next guest. Alex Smith is formerly unhoused, and he currently works as a homeless outreach worker. He's also been a guest on our show. Alex, thanks for being here, and welcome back. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. Good to have you here. Now, you were unhoused for a decade before you found housing four years ago. Tell us, what was your journey like? Um,
7: (laughs) my journey was really complicated because I had about six different opportunities to get into somewhere, Um, but I always gave them away to women that was pregnant or someone that was going through something while they was on the streets. Mm -hmm. So I always put other people in front of me because I didn't think that I was worthy enough or I was dealing with certain things. As a kid. So I wasn't really properly ready to have a place until it kind of got to the point where I, I couldn't take it no more. So luckily, I met a beautiful person, a beautiful soul at Open Tables, and she's like, hey, you know what? Let me take you underneath my wing. Let me see what I could work with. Start working with Park Center again. And then I want to say eight months later, I was signing
1: uh, my new lease. So it's Mm. a process. So what challenges did you face while you were making that transition from being unhoused to having a place of your own when you went from this very difficult place? I mean, what you were doing while you were unhoused is incredibly honorable, giving away opportunities for yourself. But then you get frustrated and you reach this point and you meet this wonderful person, this beautiful soul from Open Table. What was that transition process like for you?
7: Um, It was a lot of me getting out of my own way because when you're a young kid on the streets, you're not an adult at all. You're a kid. So when you are a kid, you think like a kid. And you're like, well, I can do this on my own. I can make a way for myself. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, that pride get in the way of asking for a handout that you think is a handout, which honestly is not a handout. It's someone reaching across and saying, hey, I'm gonna pull you up. That's where the problem lies for a lot of our senior friends that's still on the street. Mm -hmm. They hear so much negative, but they don't hear the positive side of it. So when you hear so much negative, you believe that negative, even though it never happened to you. Mm -hmm. And once you get out of your own way, and you start rationalizing your thought process and be like, you know what, I do need help. I do need this, I do need that. I do need to depend on the people to get me where I need to be. It becomes an easier process. Mm-hmm. And you never know the blessings that might come full fast and quickly for you.
1: Now, Liz mentioned something interesting. She said that when she got into her place, it was a different mode of thinking from being outside survival to living inside. She said that she didn't know how to work a thermostat. Did you have trouble adapting to your new environment being indoors?
7: Oh, absolutely. Like, it took me a full year to realize I cannot get kicked out of my own place. Mm. Because me and Liz was talking outside and I was telling her that I was lucky enough to have family and friends to tell told me how to pay bills, how to do this, how to do that. But a lot of our friends, once you get into your own place, everything that you used to know is completely wiped away. Hmm. And once it's completely wiped away, you're like a fresh newborn child. You don't know how to ride the bus. You don't know how to work your stove. You don't know how to work your thermostat. You don't know how to pay bills unless your caseworker or your support group is behind you to help you with this process.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host Khalil Acalona. We're talking this hour about the challenges unhoused people face on the path to permanent housing. My next guest has hands-on experience helping these folks. Samantha McAlpine is an outreach worker with Open Table Nashville. Samantha. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show.
8: Thanks for having me. So
1: tell me, what is your role as an outreach worker?
8: Uh, honestly, it depends on what day you ask. Um, hmm. So on face value, our number one function is to go out and go to where people are staying, whether that's camps, um, whether that's one of the few sites that people can actually stay sanctioned um, and sort of you know find people. See what they need, and hopefully get them on the path to more permanent housing, mostly through at least for Open Table, mostly through Section Eight. So um, you know we're the ones on the other side, helping people get their documents, helping pe- get people in the system, and then doing a whole lot of waiting along with everyone else.
1: Yeah, mm. how complex is the
8: application process? It's pretty complex. Um, there's so many tiny little steps you have to take. So, um, you know, the city has its own database system that everyone has to be entered into. Most organizations also have their own database that you also have to enter your people into. And then, um, before anything else can happen, you have to do with someone what's called a VI spadat. Now, this is kind of tricky to explain, but yeah. basically a VI spdat is a sort of assessment tool to, um, at face value, figure out you know how much in need someone is, and it takes an inventory mostly of, you know, risk factors and things like that. Um, and in theory, the higher the score, the more someone needs it. Mm-hmm. Now that's surface value what we're doing, and uh, you know, in theory, what it's supposed to do is. Help people who are in need the most, which, again, at face value, that's what we want to do, right? Uh, that's not really how it works, though. Um, Break it down for us. Sure. So on the one hand, there are several, I think, factors that are missing from it. Um, it doesn't account for race. It doesn't account for gender. There are several factors that you know we know are place people at higher risk of things happening to them that... Uh, We know there are things that might make it more difficult for them to get housing. Those really don't get factored in that much. Um, But what I think is even more of a problem is, um, you know, we have way more people out on the streets than we have housing available. That's a problem that we've had for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is you get score inflation with the VI spit ad. Everyone that gets one done has a number assigned to them that's basically like their score. And basically the higher the score, the more b- bad things have happened to you, which mm-hmm. is how I explain it to people. Um, the score where you're supposed to be able to get help is like around a seven or an eight. Right now, I'm not seeing anybody getting pulled from these lists that is under like a 13 or a 14.
1: Whoa, hold on. Double the 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 prereq, the required score for housing that's correct that's what yes. people are coming
8: in at yeah wow so that is a problem there in and of itself and what you get and what i have seen time and time again is instead of helping the neediest people like it's supposed to do what it's doing is actually putting pushing people into more desperate and terrible situations well, ask, answer this for me. I mean, how do you keep people's motivations high enough to
1: complete the application process if it seems like this very stagnant and depressing thing to go through?
8: Yeah, I mean that is that is the hundred dollar question, um, and it's a conversation that you know me and my colleagues are having all the time. Um, at Open Table, we have some advantages and disadvantages. One of the things that I really like is we keep a smaller team. Uh, more through necessity than anything but our that smaller team allows us to dedicate more time to each individual that we work with and so for me you know I figure out what a person needs consistently or what a person you know just likes like you know I basically um, the first individual that I housed through open table um, I kept bribing in with ice cream basically mm. to keep it going um, you just,
1: so this next question relates to that. What is the client's role in this? You had to bribe somebody with ice cream to do it. What is, <laughs> what is the role in really keeping their motivations up and having them see the entire process through?
8: Um, that, that that's a layered question. You know, I I think s- some people imagine you know a housing navigator just being able to you know. Just make it all happen. When and actually, um, you know what Alex said was very correct. It's a collaborative effort, and you know the individual that you're working with has to work just as hard. You know you have to keep track of your appointments, show up to your appointments. You have to keep in con- in touch with your housing navigator, um, and you know that that involves. Keeping your phone bill paid for, trying to stay out of trouble as best you can while surviving—two um, two goals that are often at odds with each other—and it's you know it's sort of a mixture of organization and having support and finding something within yourself. You know, I don't think there's one. If there's one magic switch to make people like stick to it, I don't know what it is. I'd love to find out.
1: You know, part of the path to permanent housing is transitional housing. Mm -hmm. We have two official options here. One is through the mobile housing navigation centers located around town, and the other is through the Salvation Army, which is how Tammy got her temporary housing. But really, you know, these options are pretty limited, right, Alex? Um, Absolutely.
7: The problem of it is if you're not working with a caseworker or a navigator, there's little to no chance of you getting into a place which is very sad. A lot of people is very independent. So they like to do their own research. They like to fill out their own paperwork. They like to go to places and navigate for themselves because they absolutely can. But a lot of times, based on their appearance, they're not getting that chance. Or they will ask them, well, do you have a caseworker? Or do you have someone that we could talk to to make sure that if we do allow you in, you're gonna pay your bills? Like, it shouldn't be that way. Everybody should be treated equally. And our friends on the streets, we are getting mm. the bare minimum when we're trying to do it on our own. Mm. That's why a lot turns in, turns to the navigation system and the caseworkers, just to get an extra push, just to see if it happens.
1: Now, Samantha, I see you nodding, and you once ran a transitional housing facility. What are some of those issues they're
8: facing? Um... Issues facing as far as, and I'm, I'm sorry,
1: I and the issues that some of these transitional housing facilities are facing as far as like really, really being effective, oh. effectively being able to help folks.
8: Sure. So, uh, you know, like it's, uh, I, I'm someone who you know on paper is for transitional housing. Um, people have to go somewhere. You know, they don't don't stop existing just because they're out on the streets. And if you clamp down on camps, okay, where do they go next? Um, but in transitional housing is not a catch-all um you know it's uh, there is a lot of that you know when someone's out on the streets they're in survival mode and everything that helped them stay alive out on the streets now becomes a hindrance the moment that environment changes and you don't unlearn that overnight and um Hope as you might, there is not enough support in most organizations to be able to help people transition with their housing. So, uh, a lot of it amounts to sort of just uh, dropping someone off in in mostly hotel rooms and going, "Okay, good luck." Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's not that's that's a fault of the entire system. Um, it's there aren't enough people, and we're already spread too thin. Um, that transitional housing by itself is not enough. You need transitional housing with support of people in place who are dedicated just to helping out folks who are in that transitional system, and well, that's often not the case. Alex, let me ask
1: you. You work in advocacy and outreach. How important is it that peer support, that people get peer support for themselves when they're trying to find permanent housing? Oh, it's
7: next to your caseworkers, 1,000%. Like... Having peer support from people that's been where you've been and now you're entering their world because once once you've been homeless, it's something that you will never shake. But once you get housed, it's a whole new spectrum. But if you don't have someone or a group or four or five just be like, hey, I remember when I got in. This is what I did. Mm -hmm. This is what I did for this. This is what I did for this. This is what I did for this. Okay, I know the potholes here, here, here. I'm going to navigate you through it, but I'm going to let you figure it out on your own too. Mm -hmm. There's, There's some, again, you have to be with some type of system in order to get it. There's not enough outside peer support. That's why I've advocated so much when I'm in meetings and stuff like that, because I know how important it is for the ones that don't really trust people that works for them, Mm -hmm. that they rather trust someone that was there with them.
1: We're going to have to end it here. That is Alex Smith. He's an outreach worker. He was joined by Samantha McAlpine, an outreach worker with Open Table Nashville. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Liz Mallard is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll learn about the collaborative solutions local advocates have been developing to help find permanent homes for our unhoused neighbors. Join the conversation by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Kelowna, and this is Nashville. As we heard before the break, the steps to finding permanent housing for our unhoused community members is a long and hard one, and it doesn't end at finding temporary or permanent housing. So what will it take to make the process sustainable and successful for this community? My next guest's play a vital role in this process. Judy Tackett is a journalist with a contributor and the former executive director of Metro Homeless Impact Division, and Stephen Handy is the pastor of McKendry United Methodist Church. Judy, Stephen, thank you both for being with us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. So, Judy, I understand that you had a hand in developing the mobile housing navigation centers. What was your hope for this program?
3: The hope was, well, first of all, it came out of the, in 2020, out of the COVID crisis, where immediately the entire nation didn't know what to do. And we all knew that the homeless population was extremely vulnerable to COVID and very exposed. So one of the things we looked at, um, motels were empty because there was no tourism. So how can we utilize what's empty Mm -hmm. and help people that are, you know, have underlying real difficult health issues that a lot of people living outdoors do have, help them inside. So, we we created a partnership. Uh, I reached out to Community Care Fellowship, a small nonprofit that was nimble, um, reached out to the First Foundation for some funding to create a pilot and uh, identified a, a small pilot program for a few months to really how do we Use the system, get people in. What does need to happen? What does the program look like? And then later on, at Metro, we went to ask for funding for it and really create that and looked at motels are expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not sustainable. So that's where the sustainability comes in, looking at where our spaces. and we we went to churches and looked at can we use some of the spaces that are empty.
1: Have the centers been working?
3: They have been, um, and I want to ask, and I'm looking over here to um, Reverend Handy a little bit uh, because he's on the ground there. Um, when we looked at uh, the locations, it's like it, the the goal was always to, and that's where the mobile housing navigation center, the mobility comes in. It's not to create permanent spaces that are temporary, uh, but it's 24-7 beds that somebody's assigned to the bed and refer to a bed, that's where they really focus on their housing mm-hmm. and stabilize and do it dispersed in different geographic areas. So we started in Bellevue, we went to Madison, and the third one is in the downtown area at McKendree.
1: Now, Stephen, your church, McKendree United Methodist, is running the newest mobile housing navigation center, but I understand the church wasn't always open to help in that way. Tell me, what did it take to get to that point where you're now operating one of these centers?
0: So I'll give you a quick history story. Okay. In the early 80s, there was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Matlock who decided to serve sausage biscuits to those who were on the streets of downtown Nashville. They brought them into the Fellowship Hall in our basement, and people rejected it. Um, long ago, a few spaces... In the future, there was a couple by the name of um, Carol and Ken. They decided to invite the church to rethink this whole idea of what it means to be in the neighborhood. Long story short, the church was still somewhat resistant, and so they went across the river to East Nashville and started this new project called Community Care Fellowship. However, the homelessness issue downtown never went away. And so when I got there 13 years ago, I literally walked over some homeless, what we call um, unhoused siblings, Mm -hmm. to get in our front door. And I said, oh my goodness, what have I stepped into? And I realized that we as a church needed to give ourselves away. So we were doing room in the inn for about 20 years, but the problem never went away when the season ended, and so we decided to invest in some space around um, housing transitions, Um, food on on Tuesdays, and then closed closet on Mm -hmm. Thursdays.
1: Mm -hmm. So how effective have the mobile housing
0: navigation centers been? Well, to be determined, we started December 1. Okay. And so we are still processing. But our transition housing facility called Restoration Point, our nonprofit, has been about a 50% um, success rate getting men in and getting men out. And so now this is the... Kind of phase two of that project okay now liz it,
3: yeah i want to jump in here yeah. because they are going to be successful as long as there's permanent housing at the end mm-hmm. if you have a lack of affordable low income permanent housing with the right supports around it that's how successful the mobile housing navigation centers are going to be okay it's it's really that transition it's really that temporary place well, wh- to get into housing
1: what type of help is needed from the city to make that happen
3: uh, really invest in affordable housing. Um, invest in uh, as quickly as possible. I, I mean, there needs to just be a lot of um, opportunities. I think the city with the $50 million investment is going the right direction to really, that's a good start. It's not going to end homelessness or chronic homelessness but it's a really good kickstart and they're going the right direction with that housing focus Mm -hmm. and that's where the investment needs to really be
0: now i think that's the physical aspect but there's an emotional aspect that if we're not careful we will get people in housing and they will turn around and leave because we have not dealt with the emotion the mental capacity of Mm -hmm. people and so one of the things that we have done is we do a screening on the front end when you come into our facility to make sure where you are. doesn't mean you're good or bad. It lets us know where you are on the spectrum. And we have a counseling center that supports men who are coming into our um, facility today. Now, Liz, how do you
1: respond to what the pastor said? How important is it that people really help not just get you into a place, but help the emotional and mental aspect of people who are now found permanent housing?
6: It's a must have. Um, Me personally, you know, I didn't realize how Bad, not bad, but um, I guess bad's what I'm going to use. Uh, my mental health was because of the self-medicating, you know, how many issues that I actually had. And so going into it, the mental side of it is huge, but also just the living, you know, like I was telling you, the um, the thermostat. But I didn't know. And then you kind of feel embarrassed and then you feel ashamed and you need support all around, you need somebody encouraging. You need somebody helping with the mental health that's down on their level. Not just somebody that's going to come in and say, "Oh, well, this, this, and this." You need to have somebody that's lived it, that knows, that can say, "This is what happened. This is how I made it through." And you have to have, you know, counselors that support and are ready to lend that listening ear, um, because the whole thing is, is you don't want to feel like just a person like, oh, well, this person, number one, number two, down the line, they need to have like interaction on a more personal level to succeed and guidance. It's all about guidance Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't know where to go without the supportive aspect of it.
1: So you're looking for somebody to really invest into you and your help rather than just kind of assembly assembly line style
6: help people out. I don't want it to be like okay, we got you out of this camp, put you over here, and it's out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. That's not the issue, because all those same issues that led to their homelessness is just moved into a place with the roof over it.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour about the path to permanent housing for our unhoused community members. Now, Judy, you spent years in government and a government role working with the unhoused community. Last year, you wrote an op-ed for the contributor that talked about The dangers of the city's focus on encampments rather than reducing homelessness. What is the city missing in terms of their approach to encampments?
3: Uh, Especially in that I've been very critical about any city, not just Nashville, is in danger of putting politics before the people's needs. Mm. So I made a difference in there's a difference to have an encampment closure plan that still houses people. Or a housing plan where, when we, I'm looking at Liz again, where we really focus on what do the people need? When do they need it? Let's not rush through it. Let's really make sure that the supports and the community building is in place for the people. And then there are options that people can go to. There shouldn't be just one path from here's an encampment, then we get get you into this transitional place, and then we get you in. To permanent housing, there should be different type of options and really listening and working with the people so that they are, in essence, making decisions for themselves. What's, and s- sometimes they're not able or capable or wanting to, mm-hmm. but that's where the peer support comes in, I believe.
1: What does the city need to invest in to make that more of a reality?
3: Um, really looking at, I think, as I said before, right now there's a chance they're really looking at different options. Uh, I think Nashville has a good start. Um, They need to be really invest in the relationship building with um, not just the people that they're serving, but also the providers build their trust out. That is key. Um, That's a trust building. And and, uh, Reverend Hendy and I had conversations about that forever. How do you actually get the faith community involved? It's really that community building. The city is in a key position to bring the right people around the table and have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And, and being an enabler that way.
1: Now, Liz, government officials, they've been pushing to move folks out of encampment and parks, including your old home, Brookmead Park. The city just closed an encampment in December and re- re- relocated folks. Seeing that we have this lack of transitional housing, what are you worried about for unhoused people being moved by the authorities?
6: Uh, there's a lot to be worried about, again, back to the whole emotional side of it. You know, they they'll get in somewhere and not know what to do or they'll feel trapped. A lot of it, you know, mentally, they they don't like to be that enclosed and having that many people in one spot. And then the fear, a lot of times people will leave because the fear, you know, the other shoe is going to drop at any point. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, everybody's path is different. So kind of like what Judy was saying, you know, you got to have different options because there is a fear of them not knowing anything to do but be out there. And that's what's comfortable to them Mm -hmm. to get to the mentality of wanting to stay. Some people get it quick. Some people don't. And if, you know, if they don't know or have options, uh, they, won't, they can't make them up on their own because they've been stuck in survival mode. And so that's a big fear of how do we get them out of survival mode and into learning and living and growing up as a person. Because you don't know how to grow up. You don't know how to live. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Steve, this is an issue that affects the entire community. So collaboration Absolutely. is really needed to find a solution. How do we achieve that?
0: Judy and I have been working on this for a while. We started before the pandemic, and we invited faith leaders, nonprofits, and governmental folk around the table to talk about what are some solutions. What we've determined is, unless you have that triad and also with some lived-experienced folk around that table, uh, we're spending a lot of time navel-gazing mm. and spending time in the political rhetoric of the day. Churches, there are 700 churches in Davidson County. So I always tell people we can deal with the transitional housing issue if churches are willing to share their space and realize their space is not theirs. It's communal space. And that's what got us caught up in the reality of what is our role in this. We can't do worship on Sunday and Bible study on Wednesday. We can't have a social justice heart without having social justice hands. Mm -hmm. And what we find in this community called Nashville, we have a lot of social justice rhetoric without the reality of getting our hands and feet dirty with our siblings. And so we have determined that the model of the triad is critical not only to the conversation, but to the reality of saying, government officials, we're going to hold you accountable for our tax dollars because they are our tax dollars for God's people. And churches have to step up to the reality that their churches, they don't own. It's part of God's divine plan for all God's people. Now, Judy, last question for
1: you, you know, what would you like to see in terms of this triad being pretty robust and resound and being able to help folks?
3: In a simple manner, I would like to see a menu. Think of it as a restaurant menu. You have options. You look, you know, how much costs what and really work with churches. Because when you look at churches, you got government officials going to church, you got landlords that we need at the table. And that matter is really working with hard, you know, and to recruit them at the table. So it's like, what are the different options for the different faith communities? And, and, and faith communities, they know how to build community. And I think that's one of the key elements that government hasn't been really good at bringing to the table and that's what's needed.
1: Judy Tackett is a column, columnist with the contributor. She was joined by Stephen Handy, pastor at McKendry United Methodist Church, and Liz Mallard, who is a volunteer with Colby's Army. I want to thank you all for being with us. Really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you again.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're talking divorce. Every January, divorce lawyers see a spike in business. What resources are available to folks navigating a divorce? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by freelancer Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our producers are Steve Harouche. Rose Gilbert and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent Jindamir Blade. Shout out and special thanks to India Punk Archer. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.